So we're going to see that unfold this morning. We're going to start in Romans 10, 18. We're going to cross over that forbidden boundary in a sermon, which is a chapter marking. Yes, we're going to traverse into chapter 11. And, uh, and we'll, let's hear the word of God from Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out in all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But as... But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let me pray before uh, we hear the meaning of this text. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship this morning. We know that we have entered this holy place, the presence of God, by means of the blood of the Lamb. We don't come bearing our own works. We don't come bearing our own righteousness. We come humbly, receiving from Christ a righteousness that belongs to him. So we ask that as we hear from your word this morning, that our hearts would be made tender. We would be soft to the truth that it reveals, Lord, not taking it as the word of man, but as the word of God. Let us be transformed and adjust accordingly, Lord, that we would be found obedient to your word and doers of your word and not merely hearers. So I pray for your help this morning, Lord. I, I need it as a preacher. As a minister of the gospel, I need your help, Father, to speak what is true. Help us together, Lord, understand and appreciate this as the word of God. Don't let the light show distract you. It's a bit of a strobe effect here. So, not an unchallenging passage. We are entering the most vast and comprehensive and detailed summary of the current state of Israel anywhere in the scriptures. I'm just going to... It's... If, it, if it's off, then it's like a modern church without lights. So, we're entering this fascinating passage where I think nowhere else in the scriptures is Israel in its modern form most accurately and specifically described. This tells us what the current state of Israel is in our day. These passages are critical, <clears throat> not merely because we are historically curious 
And I think Israel is a historical curiosity. Now, a curiosity is an understatement because we know that they are a highly significant nation in the history of the world, in the history of redemption. Their current state and their future state are of immediate interest to us as Christians, and they speak to us about God's redemptive plan, absolutely. But we don't just take interest in Israel because of their historic significance, but because Israel is the timeless paradigm for salvation in every generation. Their journey was the historic forerunner and paradigm for our journey in Christ. Jesus' death on the cross was described as an exodus. Our salvation is described as being freed from Egypt. Our rest in Christ is compared to entering the promised land in Hebrews chapter 4. So we look at Israel as a model and a proof of God's faithfulness and of his redemptive purposes. Wherever Israel fell, we are warned. And wherever they succeeded, we are commended. And that's why we have Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith. We are commended where our forefathers were commendable, and we are warned where they were unfaithful, which is why Deuteronomy 32 is so critical, along with Romans 10. So last week we heard this uh, sort of a mini Great Commission, that we are to go and bring the gospel into the world. Because the world needs to call on God to be saved. And they'll never call on him if they don't believe in him. They'll never believe in him unless they are told. They'll never be told unless there's a preacher or a publisher. And they'll never be a preacher or a publisher unless they are sent. So it it traces the salvation of all mankind back to our own two feet. And it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of good news, who declare the salvation of God. And yet, this week, we look at this idea of a remnant. The remnant, it signifies God's judgment that he passes on people, but it at the very same time proves his unchanging faithfulness. The remnant is at the same time both of those things. It is the proof of his judgment, and it is the proof of his faithfulness in the same group. And so... We looked last week at the recognition that if we're going to begin a gospel ministry, we have to recognize that God first is sovereign in that. We need to recognize that it is not up to us to achieve salvation. Isaiah says, who believed our report? They did not all believe who heard. And so in modern evangelicalism, we need to, we need to hone in on these questions. And the, Paul asks, I ask, did Israel... Not here. So when people don't believe, the question needs to be asked, well, they must not have heard because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if they're not believing, maybe there was a problem with the hearing. As humans, we want to ask that question. Paul says it wasn't because they didn't hear. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out in all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So Isaiah groaned, Lord, who has believed our report? Why aren't they believing? You sent me to teach them. Why aren't they accepting it? And if faith comes by hearing, who heard more than Israel? 
If faith comes by hearing, we need to look to the one nation that heard from God more than any other nation. <clears throat> Remember, the church is being birthed in a time where Israel is systematically rejecting and persecuting the church of Christ. The early persecution in the church did not come from Rome. It came from Jerusalem. <clears throat> so Christians are asking, why is God's people that heard the word of God, why are they rejecting? Maybe they didn't hear. Maybe the message wasn't clear. I wonder if you ever struggle with that when you're sharing the gospel, when you're trying to live out your faith. Did I say enough? Did I, did I get it clearly across? I'm sure we've all wrestled with that, haven't we? Oh, I blew that evangelism opportunity. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't say what I meant. I didn't get to that one verse. That would have really pierced them. And we struggle with that. And Paul says, no, their unbelief is not because they didn't hear. And here's why. And he quotes Psalm 19. And it's because Psalm 19 is one of the great passages on what we would call natural revelation. He's talking about the creation crying out the knowledge of God. He says their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. What's he specifically talking about? Well, the rest of the psalm tells us, he says, the psalm writer says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, their utterance to the end of the world. That passage also says, no words are heard. So although the trees do not speak English, their words are pouring out. When the sun rises, it reveals the knowledge of God. When the sun sets, night to night pours forth knowledge. In other words, creation has this quality where if you've shared the gospel with somebody, they're already living in the world that God made. They've already been exposed to the glory of God. They're already under conviction for their sin. They've already experienced the call of creation to God's glory. Romans chapter 1, same book as we're studying, says that they know the eternal attributes of God. They know that he's eternal and they know that he's all-powerful. So they already know there's a God. So when you share the gospel, it's not new information. The gospel is a plea to respond. It is a plea to repent. It is a plea to, to turn from their sin, from their rebellion against God. That's what Romans 1 says. Man who rejects God is living in rebellion to him, not in some neutral, I haven't decided yet. He says creation is already crying out. Now creation, again, as I said, has this funny effect where it's, it's everywhere. If you have been born into this world, you've been born into the theater of God's revelation. You've already, it says their cords go throughout the earth. You can't be a human being and not have experienced the glory of creation. If you've heard a song that brings forth the beauty and harmony of music, if you've ever seen a painting that brings together composition and color and just ignites the imagination, if you've ever heard, you know, the song of a bird or seen the shape of a flock moving as one unit or the wisdom of the bee or the ant working to build and harvest 
You, you're already steeped in the knowledge of God. And the gospel commands you to repent. That's what Paul is saying. It's not that they didn't hear because everybody's heard. We all live in the world of creation. And so this is of grave importance that there are none who will say, I did not know. There's none who come into judgment. There's none who come to God finally who will say, I didn't know. They will be sorry for their rebellion, but, it, but they will not say, I didn't know. So number two, they, it, wasn't that, sorry, it wasn't that they didn't hear. No one will say, I never heard. Number two, it, it's not because they didn't know or didn't understand. Well, maybe they just didn't understand the consequences of their rebellion. And that moves into Deuteronomy 32. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, he says, did Israel not hear? And he says, no, that's not it. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Maybe they were just childish. Maybe they didn't quite comprehend what it would cost them to rebel against God. And he says, no. Read Deuteronomy 32. They knew exactly what would be the cost of their rebellion. That God would judge them and that he would actually turn his attention away from them. So the redemption of other nations would be a judgment on Israel. He says to them, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. I will make you angry by an unholy people. And so this is why Jerusalem persecuted the early church in the first place, because it was being filled with unholy people. The church today is being filled with unholy people who don't deserve the grace of God. That's me. This church is pastored by an unholy man who doesn't deserve the grace of God. That is God's judgment in, in part on Israel. That somebody as wretched as me, who didn't grow up obeying the Torah, who didn't grow up observing the Sabbath, who didn't, you know, I, I wasn't steeped in the tradition of the elders. That somebody like me and my dad could become a Christian. My dad was saved the day after he overdosed on alcohol and probably some drugs and woke up in his own filth in his early 20s and he received the gospel and he was mercifully redeemed and that is in large measure why I'm here today I'm wearing a tie that my dad preached in once my dad wasn't a, a, a preacher by vocation but he could handle God's word and, 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 I, and I wear that remembering that God is faithful to people who do not deserve it myself included and so Israel's unbelief is not just, well, we forgot. We didn't know, Lord, and we didn't know it would be so bad. He warned them. He said, I will go after unholy nations when you reject me. And this would be, again, not just slipping up on some small part of the law. It wasn't because somebody went and, you know, took too many steps on the Sabbath, which is not part of God's law anyway, but... It, it wasn't some minor slippage. This was brazen idolatry. If you heard what Dave read, they went and sacrificed to demons who are not gods. If you, you look at Moses coming down from the mountain and they made idols out of gold that they bowed down to. And what's worse is they didn't just bow down to these idols, but they attributed to the idols that which only God did. He said, behold, your gods who led you out of Egypt. So they stole the redemption of God and they placed it on an idol. 
who literally was made out of gold. I mean, that is brazen idolatry. We see in our day, with the rise of, you know, vaccine uptake and all of these things, we see a lot of religious leaders attributing to things like the vaccine that which only God can do. They're, they're calling it salvation. They are, they are giving it divine status. I mean, you, you may believe that it's going to help you, you know, not have severe symptoms or whatever, but, but that when, when you attribute divine status to things that we make, it is idolatry. It is brazen idolatry. And we see all over the world religious symbols being co-opted for sort of the COVID cult. And it's idolatry, which is why the Christian church needs to reassert that God alone is worthy of our praise, that he alone in his hand is salvation, as Kevin reminded us this morning. God is jealous for his own glory in a way that is infinitely more than Israel is jealous for its own privilege. Israel loved being a special nation. They loved being set apart. They loved having a promised land that was filled with resources, that was filled with opportunity, that they were sovereign over, that they had a temple, that they could go at permanent structure. Wouldn't that be nice? They knew they had a solid place where God was showing his faithfulness. But what they did not do was connect their privileges and blessings from God with their obedience to God. They lost that connection. They started enjoying the blessings of God, not recognizing that they come from a God who demands obedience. And how true is that in our land today, in our time today? We want all the benefits of a free and prosperous market. We, we want to enjoy the integrity of our tradesmen and our builders who would use quality and, and strive for beauty. We want families to flourish and care for themselves and for the needy. We want powerful and effective education. We want national unity and peace. peace. We want trustworthy public medicine. But when you abandon faith in God, when you abandon worship of God, all of his blessings fall out the bottom. You cut the bottom of the bucket out. And you go around trying to collect God's blessing without obedience to God, without worship to God. And this is what Israel did, and it's a warning to us. Don't go around saying we want all the benefits of a, you know, a free Christian society unless you are willing to turn to the author of life, unless you're willing to embrace the God who provides it. We're losing all of these things, I would say slowly, but I, but I think it's actually quickly. We are losing these things at a rapid pace in Canada, not because we elected the wrong politicians. They are a symptom of the faithlessness of our nation. It's not their fault. We asked them to go represent us, and they're doing exactly what we want. It begins with faith in God which is why more than ever the church is the most essential institution in the history of man. Why the church must not close, why the church must not shudder, why the church must not be silent, why the church must not change its message to one of mere social reform. We need to call on people to have faith in God and to show them the consequences of unbelief, the way Israel was warned. They knew it wasn't because they didn't know so God has provided the witness and he has also provided the warning. Third, it wasn't because they didn't have a chance. 
What does verse uh, 21 say? All day long I have held up my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. How many years has this nation lived in relative prosperity, peace, and freedom? Preachers in this country can have been able to say whatever they've wanted since the foundation of the world, of the country. There's never been any censorship laws. There's never been any um, persecution. There's never been any hardship for the church in Canada. So why, after generations of a free church, are we seeing the implosion of society? God held out his hand, and in large measure, the offer of the gospel has been rejected. Now, that might be an indictment on churches for not giving enough gospel to even be rejected. And that's an indictment on Canada for rejecting it. It's both. But at any rate, we are moving into a time where a remnant will be preserved as God both judges and proves his faithfulness. So God is not unjust to move on from unfaithful institutions. He is not unjust to move on from unfaithful people who reject the truth, who after God has held out his hand, has only received disobedience and obstinance or stubbornness. Paul is saying he's moving on in the context of Israel. Here's why it's just of God. Number one, they heard. Number two, they knew. And number three, they deserved it. Number one, they heard. Number two, they knew. And number three, they deserved it. It's a hard truth, but it's the truth of God. That people who hear, people who know, and people who reject deserve it. I held out my hand. I gave them a chance. That is the claim of Scripture. And so we turn now to the remnant as our lesson. This is a difficult passage, and we're going to get more into the implications of Israel and modern-day church and how that pans out and what the future of Israel is. I'm not going to tease that very much this morning. But what we need to recognize is the evidence of the remnant is the proof of God's faithfulness to all his people. Some might charge that when God rejected ethnic Israel, when I say ethnic Israel, I mean those born of the blood of Jews, born into the tribal, national people of Israel. That has been rejected by God. We saw that in the words of Christ, that he would visit them in judgment on the temple, that the temple would be destroyed as a sign of his judgment. We see that in the, uh, the Sanhedrin rejecting Jesus. We see that in the Jews handing over their Messiah to be judged, or to be, to be crucified. So God has promised his judgment on ethnic Israel. But when ethnic Israel is judged, some might say, well, then God is unfaithful. Because God promised ethnic Israel a future, didn't he? We read it last week, Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. So if God rejects ethnic Israel, has he broken his promise? Ethnic Israel today exists in a secular, godless state. Make no mistake. They are preserved in some fashion by, by sort of Western 
Christian values in some fashion, which are also deteriorating. But ethnic Israel today is godless. They hold to their territory, they hold to their rightful place as a mere historic curiosity. They do not hold to fear of God. So the question must be asked, has God broken his promise? Because if God will break his promise to Israel, then there's no proof he'll keep his promise to you. How does Paul answer that? He answers it very personally. He says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite. I belong to the people of God. I am an ethnic Jew. And I am saved. God has not rejected his people because I'm one of them. I'm one of them. Even if we see judgment on the church today, has God rejected the church? Has he abandoned? People say, when, when they see the church fail, they say, well, it's time to, re it's time to you know, turn a new stone over. I guess the church is a failed project. We need to reinvent something that's more relevant to the current culture. We got to do something new. God's not doing that anymore. Incorrect. Though God might judge and reform, he is faithful to his people. And you are evidence of God's unchanging faithfulness. He says, I am a tribe of Benjamin. I'm not just somebody who tagged along. I belong to the people of God. He says, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham by blood. I'm a Benjamite. I'm a fierce Benjamite. I am one of the most passionate Israelites you'll ever meet, he says. Paul says, my life is evidence that Israel has not been wiped out, that God has not rejected them. So to evaluate God's faithfulness, we must not look at the vast numbers of the apostate. We must not look at the vast numbers of those who reject God. If you want to evaluate God's faithfulness, do not look at the masses or the majority. Look to the remnant. If you need assurance of God's faithfulness, look to the remnant. Look to the small few who remain. There you will see the face of God. There you will see the proof of his faithfulness. Those who belong to him. He brings up Elijah. I've always been warned not to have an Elijah mentality. Lord, your people have rejected you and I alone am left. And they're going to kill me. And he's like, calm down. There's 7,000 more who are like you. Sometimes we have this mentality when you feel like you're the only pure one left in your family. You're the only pure one left in your church. You're the only pure church left in Canada or Ontario. You're the only ones. Look at us. We must be pure. We're meeting in a barn. No. No, we could be meeting anywhere in a cathedral, in a barn or a park. It doesn't signify our faithfulness. And our faithfulness doesn't signify us being more special or important than anybody else. We are part of a remnant, always. We were part of a remnant five years ago. If you believe in Christ, if you're faithful to the word, you're part of a remnant. If the remnant is singled out and the, the masses are called off from the side at a specific point in time, it can be upsetting. It can be unnerving when suddenly you're looked at more weird because you meet in a barn now. When the, when the remnant becomes small and singled out, it looks weirder to the people around. And people will start questioning who God is. And you might start saying, like Elijah, you know, I alone am left. 
And, and Paul says, no, even in those days, God preserved a remnant for himself. Now, there's three things I want you to see about this remnant. Very important. What can we learn believing that we're part of a remnant? And we always have been through history. What characterizes this remnant? Number one, there will always be one. Back in the days of Israel when Elijah was the prophet, he thought that God's people had been wiped out. That it was irredeemable. He was the lone prophet and he was asking for God's protection because he thought, if I get killed, there'll be nobody left to teach the word of God. And God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. Paul says in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant. To which we echo, so too at the present time there is a remnant. There will always be a remnant until Jesus Christ returns. That's why I don't have a tremendous amount of fear about the future. Because though the nations rage and the people's plot, they plot in vain. Jesus said, I will build my church and no power of death or hell will prevail against it. That's reinforcing the concept of a remnant. The remnant will never be destroyed. <clears throat> the remnant will never fully apostatize. There will always be the people of God on earth who are faithful to him. So be a part of that. Because that's the only institution that you can guarantee God is going to preserve. It's the only institution that God guarantees he'll preserve. Nations come and go. Schools come and go. The, uh, the great seminaries of the United States have had their run. They're done. They will, they will crumble into ashes and be forgotten. The church of Christ, that will never happen. There will always be a remnant. Number two, they exist for God's purpose and by his grace. The remnant doesn't strive on because we found some golden little nugget of truth or we watched the right YouTube video that, you know, woke us up. That's not what characterizes the remnant. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bent the knee. God preserves a remnant for his purpose and by his grace alone. So be humble. If you belong to the church of God and you see apostasy around you, recognize that you are being kept by God's grace for his purposes. Not because you were more faithful, but because God is faithful to you and he's faithful to me. That's why we belong to a remnant. And number three, and this is so important, what characterizes them? Their worship. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is a visible, the invisible part of the remnant is that God did it for, by his grace for his own purposes. That part is invisible. We can't see that. The part that is visible about the remnant is true worship. They have not bowed the knee to idols. They have not defiled themselves with idolatry. I think one thing this season is teaching us is that our idols are dying. Our idols are dying all around us. And what are we left with? The word of God, our own voices, and a little lamp to light the word of God. Our idols are dying. And that's how God is preserving us. He is, he is preserving us from idolatry. 1 John 5, 1 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Preserve yourself. Stay away from it. 
Keep yourself pure in your worship for God. Now, folks, that does not mean that we teach perfectionism, which is that God will reject you if you yourself are not morally pristine and perfect. We do not preach perfectionism. We, we preach that Christ was pristine. Christ is pristine. Christ is fully righteous. And we rest literally from our works in Jesus Christ. We do not come to God in worship as a means of being preserved. But that's what characterizes us. It's a desire for true worship. It's a desire for obedience to the truth. So God has rejected ethnic Israel, but he saves ethnic Jews to be among the remnant, which includes all of us. We're going to look at this exciting concept of being grafted in next week and moving on. What it means to be grafted into the people of God, grafted into that original olive tree, which is Israel, ethnic Israel, not ethnic Israel, but true Israel, as we already saw earlier. Not, our, not all are Israel who are of Israel. So there's always been true Israel and false Israel all through history. And so it is today. And so we look next week at how, what it means to be grafted into the people of God and how we should look to the future and very fascinating stuff. But for this week, we look at this call to the remnant, this attention on the remnant that God has demonstrated both his judgment and his faithfulness in the preservation of a remnant. So when it comes to walking with God, do not put your trust in what you did last week for God. Don't put your trust in what you did this year at Evergreen Chapel or how you helped your friends at work or shared the gospel. Don't look to any of those things. As Deuteronomy showed, God poured out his blessing on them in a time of obedience and then he withdrew it when they turned to idols. So ask yourself today, do I belong to God? Am I united to God through faith in Christ? Today, don't look to last week. Don't look to last year. Place yourselves at the center of God's will through your faith in Jesus Christ today. Faith in Christ, we saw earlier, is expressed through obedience, submission and total surrender and trust in God. Is there something that you believe God has called you to but you're afraid because of the consequences in the days that we live? Probably all of us, that answer is yes. But your faith in Christ is expressed through obedience regardless of the consequences, regardless of what it might cost you or not cost you. Faith in God is always the safe place to be, right? Faith in God is the only safe place to be. Total trust in the living God, the resurrected Son of God, the King of Kings, is the only safe place to be. And as you understand yourself as being a part of a remnant, that you are small, that you are weak, that you are among the minority, when the world is being swept aside in judgment, do not be proud, do not look to other churches, do not look to other denominational confessions, do not compare yourself with others, do not live in a proud state, but give praise to God. Thank Him for His faithfulness in your life in your family? Are your children walking with the Lord? Are they professing faith? Give praise to God. It is not because you are the greatest parent, though you might be a good one. It all belongs to God. The whole remnant is saved for his purpose 
by his grace. So we ought to walk with humility. You ought to be characterized by humility when you meet opposition to your Christian convictions. When you meet opposition in the world, and there will be much, you ought to be characterized by humility because we are only here by the grace of God for his purposes. So let us never slide ourselves into the center of that redemption. Don't let yourself slide into that center. He is the center. His purposes. You are a proof of his grace and of his faithfulness to the next generation. Your faithfulness to God is a witness to your children and to the world. So gaze into and believe the deep truths of Scripture. Love them and learn them and remember them and walk humbly in them by God's grace. One last exhortation. Be memorizing Scripture in the days that we're in. Be memorizing Scripture. Memorize the great songs of Moses. Memorize the great psalms of David. Memorize the Exodus. Memorize the law of God. Memorize the trustworthy sayings from Paul to Timothy. Remember the scriptures. Hide them in your heart and in your children's heart. Um, it will be of unspeakable value in the days ahead.